0: Hello again, welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And it's great to be with you again. Philip, good to have you back this week. Um, This week we're going to be talking about the subject of church and in particular what church kind of is and what it's for. And I'm bouncing off a recent article that has been garnering quite a lot of conversation and attention in our circles here in Sydney, written by Simon Flinders. Simon was... Until recently, uh, the senior minister or rector at Northbridge Anglican Church here in Sydney, he now is working for uh, the Diocese of Sydney, and he gave an address at a synod dinner recently where he talked about the importance of the local church. And he had this very interesting paragraph uh, that I'd, I'd just like to read you, Philip, and then I'll get your reactions to this paragraph and to the the topic that's going to flow out of it, which is really the nature of of church and the purpose of church or even whether we should say that church has a purpose.
1: Good, because I didn't get the opportunity of hearing the speech. So like so many of our listeners, this paragraph is new for me.
0: Okay, so the first part of the address and the article is really about God's purposes in gathering his people in Christ and how the church is kind of the end of God's purposes. What That's what God is doing. He's gathering a people around the Lord Jesus Christ, the congregation of Christ through the gospel. So he does a really nice exposition of that idea from Ephesians. Then he says, I don't expect anything I've just said to be controversial. And yet, curiously, in our time and place people seem to often speak less about the church as the fruit of God's work and more about the church as the agent of God's work. That is, people in our circles often speak as if the local church has a primarily missional value. And this kind of input often seems to come from church consultants with this sort of flavor. And I have to admit that this thinking troubles me. Of course, the gospel of Jesus, which forms the church, also vivifies the church and it propels the people of God to be zealous for the work of the gospel in the world. And of course, the local church proclaims the gospel and expects outsiders to come into her midst and to be exposed by the gospel and so fall down and worship God, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14. Yet in Paul's writings, that prospect seems more incidental than purposeful. And I want to put it to you that the idea that the local church has a primarily missional purpose is an idea that's hard to find in the pages of the New Testament. And when we speak as if this is its purpose, I worry that we confuse church and gospel. What I mean is that it's the gospel which is the primary agent of God's mission in the world, not the local church. And I worry too that when we think and speak like this, we become foggy in our thinking about church in ways that might have a number of unhelpful implications, because church is not merely a means to an end, but a glorious end in itself.
1: That's a great paragraph, isn't it? I think he has captured much of what I would believe about the church and about evangelism. There is an error that he's mentioning, which is a very wonderful error. That is, people being too concerned about the gospel being preached.
0: That's a great thing, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Yes, if you're going to have an error, that's a good error to have. But it's still an error to see the church purely in its instrumental character rather than its end point goal, and to see the church as something we do rather than what God has done in Christ Jesus building it. I think it fails to understand the church of old in Deuteronomy, where the purpose of the church, if it has a purpose, is the gathering of God saved people to hear God's word. But it's not to do anything other than to come together to meet with God. Philip,
0: I know this is something you've thought about a lot over the years and written about, about the relationship between evangelism as a purpose, as something that we seek to do and that the gospel itself calls us to do, and the congregation, the churches that evangelism forms. And I think particularly of an article of yours that I found not long ago that lists a series of propositions that kind of tries to connect these two maybe one way to respond to what Simon's saying and to think about this would be for you to roll out some of those propositions and for us to interact over those
1: okay in that article there were 10 propositions which I'll just go through quickly 1 church is built upon the lord jesus christ and the apostolic ministry of the word of god 2 unbelievers may be present because the church is not conducted as a closed private or exclusive gathering 3 the activity of church life should always be edifying. for The gospel word that converts unbelievers is the same word which builds the church and edifies believers. 5. Church membership is the result of evangelism. 6. An edified church will be holy, sanctified and different to the world having members who are Christ-like in character and life. 7. In the New Testament, the focus and the dynamic growth is not the church, but the gospel word. Eight, evangelism doesn't always have to be personal and private and individual. There is nothing inherently wrong for Christians to organise corporate evangelism. Nine, planting and growing more gospel-preaching churches is a fundamental strategy of world evangelization. And ten, Church growth and church planting can be a distraction from gospel growth and evangelism. You know, each of these I'd unpack with uh, arguments and biblical references, but you know, as an overall quick 10-point summary, that's what I've argued previously.
0: I wouldn't mind teasing out a couple of those. When you said that final one, that church growth can be a distraction from gospel growth, what do you mean by that?
1: Well... Often church growth means little more than my church growing. Just as church planting can be simply an egoist starting his own church, it's more important to reach a growing number of people in the community with the saving news of Jesus than simply growing or planting churches. Each of these activities, church growth, church planting, involves an enormous amount of energy, direction, purpose, work, especially for the pastor of a growing church or the planter of a new church. But a lot of those activities are not actually evangelism. A lot of those activities are a distraction from evangelism. And the measurement of success seems to me to fail at this point too, because if we've got a bigger growing church, I've succeeded. Whether or not anybody's being saved, whether or not more people in the community are now going to church or not, I mean, my church may grow at the expense of all the churches around about it. So overall, there's no more Christians in church anywhere. It's just more people in my church. And so I think I'm evangelizing because my church is growing, but actually I'm not evangelizing. I'm just growing greener grass so that more sheep come my way.
0: And ironically, it can be the case that as your church grows in that way, numerically by transfer and similar kind of things, that the building and growing and edifying of the members into Christ may actually suffer because so much effort is going into the recruiting of and in integration of new members. There's so much energy that goes into the whole activity of growth. A growing church is a busy church. It's stretched. It's It's trying to get everything done. And it could be simply by trying to grow and grow and grow In a sense, that character of the church is a place in which the word of God is at work and in which mutual edification happens, that that could actually drop in quality as we try to grow.
1: Uh, Very often does drop in quality because by concentrating on the quantity, by comparing my numbers this year with last year and the year before, or comparing the amount of offertory that's been given in or something like that, I can be easily tempted to lower standards to make shorter, happier sermons, to preach topics that the non-Christian wants to hear or the community wants to hear, to allow people and encourage people to join us and to do things rather than making sure they're converted and being built up in the gospel. Once numbers become the criterion of my effectiveness, my success, then the temptation to do whatever builds numbers becomes quite great.
0: Does that mean numbers are unimportant, though? Do you What do you feel about numbers? Should, should we measure numbers?
1: Numbers are always wonderful as long as they're going upwards. <laughs> 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 yes, of course, there is a sense in which we want to see more people come under the sound of the gospel. And so we do need to pay attention to the fact of whether we're achieving that. But they're not the ultimate test of what is taking place. And there comes places and times when you need to say, well, we've reached the maximum that we can reach in this present configuration. Rather than trying to change ourselves too much, we need to encourage somebody to come alongside and start a new ministry.
0: It's interesting, from what you were saying, in terms of where evangelism actually happens and how it happens, if I can summarise, you seem to be saying, even if the purpose of church as such is not evangelism, so we don't gather to evangelize people, but we gather as God's people. Evangelism will nevertheless still happen as the congregation builds up gospel-hearted believers who are evangelistically hearted, that is, have a heart like Jesus, and, and go out into evangelistic activity in the world and have an evangelistic life. So evangelism happens as we grow evangelistically hearted believers in church. And it happens as we welcome unbelievers in our midst who will come, and they'll hear the same gospel word. And it will also happen as we organize various evangelistic activities together as evangelistically hearted believers who belong to this church. And so it'd be quite appropriate for churches to organize evangelistic things together. And we'll also, as God's people in the world, um, as members of different churches, will get together and do evangelistic things and organize evangelistic stuff. And so evangelism will still be on the agenda. In fact, it should be high on our agenda uh, and it would be a very strange church, we'd have to say, a dysfunctional and immature church in which there wasn't an evangelistic heartbeat.
1: Well, you can't grow like the Lord Jesus Christ and be unconcerned for the lost. If the church is being edified, it's growing up into Christ Jesus, becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because the members are becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you can't be more like the Lord Jesus Christ and be unconcerned for the lost, it, One of the immediate consequences of that kind of edification will be, in some form or fashion, evangelism. So it's a strange church and a dysfunctional
0: one where there's not an evangelistic heart. And yet what we're saying through your propositions and and what Simon's saying is also a strange church in which evangelism or the evangelism of outsiders is the primary purpose or focus of church.
1: Yes, quite so. Because church is not for unbelievers. Church is for believers. Church is the consequence of the gospel. You don't get converted by belonging. That's the great Catholic error, that belonging equals believing. It's a new perspective error too, I may say. Uh, No, no. It's believing leads you to belonging. It's not belonging leading you to believing.
0: Yeah, quite so. And it seems to me that in this whole discussion about the relationship of evangelism, and the purpose of church, we kind of flip back and forward. Different churches currently are different in this regard, and also historically. It it seems to be, on the one hand, we find it easy to become inward-looking, clubby, kind of holy huddle sort of congregations that have lost that evangelistic heart and are very happy to think of themselves as, as we exist for one another and to build up one another. But as you say, there's something missing there and that we're not being built up to become like Jesus who is a, who has a heart for the lost but then on the other hand we kind of flip over and get so focused on the missional goal of growth that we lose focus on the church as an end in itself, as the glorious fruit of the gospel and not just an agency or an instrument for something else.
1: Yes, it's important to have, I think, teased the issues out theologically so that we can then make good pragmatic decisions as to how we're running church. Very often it will look similar, but we might be doing it for different theological reasons, different theological factors. I mean, you preach the word of God. It's the same word that converts the unbeliever and builds the believer. So you always preach to two congregations, the unbeliever who may be there and the believer who is there. But you don't need two gospel messages. It's the same message to the two of them. And so if you haven't got it clear whom church is run for and why you're running church theologically, then I'm afraid pragmatism will grab you one way or the other either the pragmatism of having a warm, friendly, happy in-group, or the pragmatism of reaching out to other people. And that pragmatism, without having a theological rationale, is a mistake that leads to this flipping and flopping back and forward.
0: Simon's article also makes me think about, and I'm not sure it's what he's particularly wanting to focus on himself, but it It reminds me of another discussion that we've had in our circles over a number of decades and which I've written on once or twice. I think when this podcast was still called The Painful Truth, I might have written about it. Um, That is the relationship between church as a household or as a family and church as a purposeful society. Uh, These two kind of classic sort of sociological groupings, nearly all human groupings are one of those two things. They're either a family or a household or a community that exists for its own sake and for its own well-being, that has no rationale outside of itself. Or we form together into groups or societies that have purposes beyond ourselves, that exist for a particular purpose, like a company that exists to make cars and serve the society with cars and make money from making cars and so on. And in many ways, the flipping back and forward we're just talking about also happens in this regard, looking at it through that lens, as it were, that we flip back and forward from seeing the church primarily as a family that exists for its own sake. And that's kind of part of Simon's point that the church is not an instrument for something else. It exists for its own sake gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's also that sense in which we're part of God's big mission in the world, and there are purposes that we're called to that are bigger than ourselves and beyond ourselves. And it seems to me we also flip back and forth a bit and struggle to do both of these things at the same time uh, to, to emphasize the fact that church is a household and runs like a household. And yet, as God's people, we're called to a bigger purpose beyond. We're not an inward-looking household. We're a house- household that's part of, of the big purpose of God in the world. And I don't know whether Simon's thinking about this or not, but certainly I feel like we're at a moment in the circles that we move here in in Sydney, certainly, where many churches are restructuring and rethinking how to be more purposeful, how to restructure themselves around particular purposes and even outcomes, rather than organising or structuring ourselves around groups of people or sort of more household kind of view of who we are, and I think that flipping back and forward has dangers on each side of it as well. I don't know if you've got any thoughts about that, or even well, if that makes sense.
1: Well, here's a new way of saying it for me. I don't know if this is, would hold water or not, but what about thinking about the family business, the family farm? I mean, I grew up in a family, my father had a little printing shop, and we were a family. But every now and then, Dad would be bringing work home and we'd all sit around a fire, folding paper and stuffing things in envelopes. It was part of our family that we ran a business. It wasn't, in a sense, separate. It was all part of being in this particular family. You're in a family farm. You didn't fold paper and stuff envelopes. I presume you went out and... Chased cows. Did you milk cows?
0: No, we didn't milk cows. We were a beef farm, but we chased cows and we dipped cows and it was calving season and people would just get in and do what needed to be done. And yeah, that's an interesting way of of, You weren't paid by
1: the hour for that though, were you? You No, not as such. (laughs) No, well, I wasn't paid for the hours of the work, but I was paid for everything. I was provided. Dad provided for us out of the activities that he basically did and that he occasionally brought us in to do as well. So, yes, I don't want us to go down the business model of church. It is families, a much better theological view. But families don't get limited to sitting around looking at each other and doing nothing.
0: Yeah, exactly. Families exist in the world and are part of... I mean, even just human families, we don't exist just for each other. We exist to fulfil God's purposes for us in the world, to have a face out to the world, to love other people, to be generous, to be part of a community and a society where we contribute. Families are not little inward-looking cells that care only for themselves.
1: Well, push it further then in that regard, because I think, I don't know about pushing images too far, but one of the key things of raising children is to raise them to be able to leave the family nest, to be able to make their contribution in the world. And so as you build up the members of the family... So you increase the capacity for the family to be influencing the world through its members, through its children becoming adults and growing. And so, yes, we have a long-term view, and that's a family view. In our present society, where family and family life has been uh, seriously damaged, the lack of what you would call resilient is the in-word, isn't it? Uh, Able, well-grounded, self-sustaining young adults has been seriously damaged. Divorce does not help the raising of children. The the singleness of parents, you've got to take credit for those who raise their children as single parents, but it's not the ideal that produces the kind of robust, healthy adult psychology that enables people to hold down jobs, enables them to make contributions to society. Well, likewise, as the church grows in its love of the Lord Jesus Christ and love for one another, so we create the kinds of resilient people who will be able to take the gospel to the world.
0: It's interesting, though, isn't it, that in a family business, if you want to go with that kind of way of thinking about doing both things at the same time or having a dual character, you think about family businesses or, if you want to put it the other way around, a business aware family. Uh, depending on which one you think is primary, you you can see how even in a human sense, they sometimes become dysfunctional, where the business becomes so important that the children just feel like they're only useful because they're the person who can... Cheap labour. They're cheap labour, who can man the shop at all hours, or that their family life and the importance of them as members of the family, as people gets a bit lost in their functional importance to the family and what they can do.
1: Yes, that's a big mistake and a big problem when you call it the the business which is run by a family. Yeah. It's got to be the family business.
0: Yeah. Or it's got to be an outward looking family or a a generous, purposeful family. I think the yes, family you, is the is the noun and the other things are the adjectives.
1: Yes. If you raise your family without ever showing hospitality, you're not raising your family properly. Because hospitality is of the nature of God's people. And to have your children raised never having learnt to be hospitable to others, well, that's a mistake. And so a church that is never taught to be hospitable, a church that never welcomes the outsiders, well, That's not a Christ-like church because Christ is very welcoming of the outsiders. Uh, In fact, the scriptures, you know, just in terms of the sojourners that, uh, or the modern people will call it sojourners, the sojourners that uh, we have coming by that are to be accepted into Israel, even though Israel's a kind of closed shop, yet it still welcomes in the sojourners who happen to be amongst us that they too must share in the blessings of God. So yes, yeah, so the holy huddle is not in the end holy, for it fails to reflect the character of God.
0: And in the same sort of way, you would say that the very focused, intentional, purpose-oriented volunteer society that some churches become, especially some church-growthy churches, can become, is no longer the household or thinking of themselves in the household as the household of God, or organizing themselves as the household or family of God. They've become too much a group of people who've just gathered together for a particular mission or purpose.
1: And those societies are very important. That's what things like the Church Missionary Society or Scripture Union or AFES are. They are purposeful organisations of Christian people to do things. But that's why we call them parachurch rather than church, because the church is the gathering that comes as a result of the ministries, often through parachurch organisations. Many now people it- converted in schools through ICF or universities through AFS, the Christian Union or something like that, and wind up in the church, which is where Christians will be wind up.
0: It seems to me that in all of this we're we're kind of talking about theological wisdom. We're thinking about how to apply the theological themes and ideas and direction and emphasis of the New Testament to how we end up actually doing things. And so we'll decide to do things in different ways, and that wisdom will play out in different ways. But I guess the the point we're making is that, especially at our current moment, where many churches are grappling with how to be purposeful and, say, reorganizing their church structures around particular purposes, say, the M's purposes and so on that churches use, uh, and even re- redoing their staff and the way they organise their church around a bunch of purposes we're engaged in together, it it seems important to me that the theological priority or theme of household and of the congregation as a group of people with uh, um, an importance and a value in its own right and for itself, we've just got to be careful we don't lose that. That's the danger, it seems to me. It's good to be purposeful. It's good to be better organised. But we've got to be careful we don't lose the sense of congregation as household and family and organising ourselves around the people that we're caring for and the people that we're growing and edifying in pursuit of purposes larger than ourselves. Does that make sense?
1: Yep. There's another way of putting it, too, for Anglicans anyway, but I think it's true of others. But the Anglican language is the difference between parish and church. A minister has this conflict. Most ministers have this conflict, and it's a right conflict to have. That is, when we are appointed to a parish, we are made the cure of souls of the parish. And the parish is a geographical area, and every person within that area is the responsibility of the minister. For a vast majority of them, the responsibility is to preach the gospel to them, to evangelize them but he's also appointed at the same time to be the pastor of the congregation. And so we get a little confused between being the pastor of the church and being the rector of the parish, because it's both jobs that we're actually appointed to. Hopefully the two jobs will work together. By right pastoring of the congregation, we will have others to join in the evangelization of the parish. This works better in country towns or in very settled suburbs, family suburbs, than in a city where people don't live in suburbs, so to speak. They just happen to reside there. But where the parish system is built, the concept is that the minister is to minister to everybody, not just the congregation. And I'm afraid we flip-flop. These days, we just look after the congregation and ignore the parish, and then feel guilty about not evangelising.
0: Yes, that's another example, isn't it, of holding two things together in our minds at the same time, as as the Americans sometimes say, of walking and chewing gum at the same time, which is <laughs> which is usually an insult. Actually, if I if I say, look, I can walk and chew gum at the same time, it's it's a way of saying I'm not completely incompetent. I can do re- two really simple things at the same time. Whereas perhaps what we've been talking about in this discussion is that these two things aren't always simple, and it's often difficult to hold them together in our minds at the same time and not to fall down on one side. And so historically, we do keep kind of flipping back and forward between different emphases. Uh, And so that we sometimes do and that we find this attention that we need to keep managing I think that's what Simon's article and why why that quote from it I thought was such a helpful one because he was just running up the flag that in his uh, awareness and in his observation, and it's one I think I'd share, we're just at one of these moments where as we're thinking about what we're doing together and trying to urge each other on to do better in, in the ministry of the gospel, that we're in danger of doing one of these flip-flops where we head over to the other side and we become very instrumental and purposeful and lose sight of the the purpose and nature of a congregation as the household of God, which is an end in itself.
1: I think that's a terrific summary of it, and I think it's important. Thanks, Simon, for speaking and writing and such, because I enjoyed that paragraph too. How about I close in prayer on the matter, or are we going to mention some other things? More questions coming?
0: Well, there are some good questions coming in. I'm going to save up a few of them for our next episode, I think, Philip. There's been some good comments come in, but let's deal with them next time. How about you close for us in prayer? And if you do have any Questions and thoughts, dear readers, don't forget to send them in. You can just reply, uh, hit reply to the email that you get from Two Ways News if you're on our list, or else you can just email me at tonyjpain at me.com. But, Philip, yes, why don't you close in prayer?
1: Okay. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has won for us. We thank you for those who labored over us in the gospel, teaching us your truth. We thank you for calling us into fellowship not just with you but with your whole family of your people and we thank you that we can express that fellowship and anticipate that heavenly fellowship as we gather together with christians week by week and we do pray father you'd give us wisdom to know how to balance our responsibility to our family with your family with our responsibility to the preaching of the gospel that we may glorify jesus in all that we do and we ask it in jesus name
0: Amen.